0: We'll talk about a form of truly green energy that doesn't come up on the radar very often, but it's, it's pretty interesting. The world's largest tidal power device will soon begin testing off the coast of Scotland. A plane-shaped device that will be able to power 2,000 homes uh, in the UK area by harnessing the power of the tides is being towed into position off Scotland's Orkney Islands, in the North Sea. The 680 ton, 240 foot device built by Scotland's Orbital Marine Power will be connected to the European Maritime Energy Center to test the machine's effectiveness. The center, with sites across the remote Orkney Islands, is working to develop and test new forms of tidal and wave power. The orbital marine power device, which has a pair of 52-foot-long turbines attached to two wings, is expected to produce 2 megawatts of electricity. The device was the first vessel launched from the port of Dundee since shipbuilding left the city more than 40 years ago. Compared to wind and solar power, the marine energy sector has been much slower to develop because of the difficulty of working in marine environments and the technical challenges of harnessing wave and tidal power. But Ocean Energy Europe, which represents the marine power industry, forecasts that wave and tidal power will be able to meet 10% of European Union's electricity needs in the next 20 years. And here I want to insert something that's really totally personal, but so strange that this came across my desk 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. I was invited, lived in the country, to disassemble an old farmhouse to save the wood for someone that wanted to build a home for themselves. Young fellow at the time, and one of my weekends, I would um, do weekend jobs. I had to. So the job was to disassemble this house and save as much lumber as possible. But in the house was furniture. They hadn't, whoever left it, left a number of pretty beat up chairs and things. They weren't, the the furniture itself had very little value. But amongst that furniture was a giant chest, just like you would see uh, in the old movies where it had the round top and it was wood and had either brass or metal holding it together. I popped the chest open, probably none of my business, full of very interesting papers. The, the, the fun side, so I'll make this kind of a fun story, is a number of love letters from this man. And I can give you his last name, doesn't matter, I guess he's been long since gone. His name was Forshner. And he had written to this lady up in Maryland, he's down here in Texas, and had saved and bundled all of the letters she returned to him, but as far as I could tell, they never actually met any other. They were sort of what we'd call back then old-fashioned pen pals. But one thing he sent her, and he had kept copies of it because he had done the drawings himself, was an idea to capture the power of tidal waves or of wave power. Now, this this guy had written this early, I think 1920s was when these things were, were dated, maybe even a little sooner. And his idea was to build a giant dock, a huge dock off of San Francisco Bay, sticking out in the water. And I mean big enough that it would cover several city blocks. And it floated on top of the surface of the bay. And as the tides went in and out, underneath it were giant turbines as as the tides came in and went up the turbines spun and when they went back out a few hours later they spun all so it was at least as constant as wind power, if not more, and, and he thought would serve a good number. This is when electricity was just coming into being on regular household use. And he came come up with exactly the same idea that I just read you about that's now being finally experimented with over in Scotland. And I found that so coincidental when I ran into this article. So this is a little backup. This is a new construction idea to capture the power of tidal waves, but it's not a new idea. This man had thought of this now at what appears to be at least a hundred years ago. So there's my direct connection. I unfortunately released those papers to the people that had bought the house because I technically it was theirs, and went back a few years later when I finally got where I was writing for a living part of the time, and they had not bothered keeping up with the original papers. So I never went to look him up. He had claimed a couple of other patents. One, believe it or not, was an improved broom. Very strange, but it, he patented it. And the other one was he had tried to patent airfoils for an airplane and had some interesting letters from people that represented the Wright brothers. So pretty interesting fellow just to find him in a, an old chest in an old house in South Texas. There's a change of subject here. This is my quarter of the show when I do what I call biological factoids. And I'm going to try to condense. I have spent well, a few hours learning more about a thing called palm oil. We've discussed it a few times in the past, but I don't think most of us, I certainly didn't realize, the consequences of growing palm oil on a worldwide basis. To begin with, you should know, and I was sure surprised, that palm oil is found in roughly half, half now, of the United States grocery products. It has devastated tropical ecosystems, released vast amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere, and impoverished rural communities in many parts of the world. But efforts are underway that could curb the abuses of this ultra-power worldwide industry. A few weeks back, the Sri Lankan president announced that his government would be banning all imports of palm oil with immediate effect and ordered the country's plantation companies to begin uprooting their oil palm monocultures and replacing them with more environmentally friendly crops. Citing concerns about soil erosion, water scarcity, and threats to biodiversity and public health. President Gotabaya Raja Pasca, I'll only do that once, explaining that his aim was to make the country free from oil palm plantations and palm oil consumption as soon as possible. That's really a pretty radical move, but as someone who has studied the global palm industry for several years now, just out of interest, I fully support his move in that direction. In studying the palm oil business, I've discovered that worldwide, production of palm oil has skyrocketed in recent decades. Oil palm plantations now cover an area, listen to this, larger than New Zealand. But the boom has meant devastation for the planet. The oil palm plant thrives at about a 10 degree north and south area of the equator. A swath that corresponds basically totally with our tropical rainforest. Though they cover just 10% of the Earth's land surface, these ecosystems support more than half of all biodiversity on Earth. In Indonesia, the world's number one producer of palm oil, habitat loss due largely to industrial agriculture has meant that such iconic species, and it is really neat, as the Sumatran elephant, orangutans, rhinoceroses, and at least one subspecies of tiger, in addition to various species of hornbills, it's a beautiful bird, incidentally, have been pushed to the brink of total extinction. Indigenous peoples who for generations have sourced their food, building materials, and everything else from the archipelago's forests and rivers have been reduced to literally eking out existences living under donated plastic tarps and begging for food by the side of the road. Tropical rainforests are also, of course, vital carbon sinks, and many of them sit upon great expanses of peatlands, soils formed over thousands of years through the accumulation of organic matter. Indonesia claims the planet's largest concentration of tropical peatlands, and when its palm oil companies drain and burn that land as a precursor to planting, unimaginable quantities of CO2 escape into the atmosphere. The country's peatlands currently emit more carbon dioxide. Listen to this. Just the peatlands they've messed up emit more carbon dioxide than the whole state of California. For instance, these days, palm oil accounts for over one-third of total global vegetable oil consumption. Think about that number. And some derivative of that. Palm plant lurks in roughly half of all the products in the United States grocery stores. And I'm not just talking about groceries, folks. I'm talking about shampoos, lipsticks, toothpaste, non dairy creamers, donuts, and tons of other baked products that they don't even have to tell you the palm oil is used in their production. Another interesting fact about this that we just, I was unaware of, though we often here in the the States look to sugar as the culprit of the world's weight woes, everybody getting obese these days, the truth is refined palm oil along with some other vegetable oils have actually added far more calories to the average global diet in the last half century than sugar or any other food group. Yet most of us here in the States don't even have any idea we're actually eating it. Rates of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease are soaring all over the world, especially where the multinational companies are peddling such junk, and all they're worried about is growing their markets. Interestingly, the World Health Organization compared the tactics used by the palm oil industry directly to those employed by the tobacco and alcohol lobbies of the past. But if there were ever a time for governments to stand their ground, now's that time. Last week, the International Energy Administration reported that to have any chance of meeting the temperature targets set in the Paris Accord, investment in fossil fuel supply projects has to cease immediately. We also need to slam the brakes on tropical deforestation. Big, big problem with palm oil. Ripping out an entire nation's oil palm acreage as Sri Lanka is doing may not be the most practical way to solve our intertwined climate problem, biodiversity, and other health crises. But it's certainly a step in the right direction. Thanks for staying tuned to Organic Matters.